from the Subaru of Gwinnett Studio at the Gas South Convention Center in Duluth, Georgia, welcome to Celebrating Powerhouse Women, proudly presented by NEMA and Sourced. And welcome back to another exciting episode of Celebrating Powerhouse Women. As you know, this is the series that salutes and recognizes women leaders making an impact. I am your host, Amanda Pierch Marmalejo, joined in studio today by Marsha Anderson Bomar. Marsha is the Deputy Commissioner of Engineering of the City of Atlanta Department of Transportation. <laughs> and that was a mouthful. Welcome to the show, Marsha. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. I'm very excited that we finally got to catch each other as we circled around there for a little bit. Um, please expand on this brand new position that you hold within the city of Atlanta, because I am excited to learn a little bit more, and I know our listeners are too. Oh, thanks for asking. So um, about a year ago, the um, mayor's office approached me. Uh, they needed a commissioner of transportation for a department that at the time was about uh, two and a half years old. And um, I was honored and thrilled, but um, the mayor of Atlanta is remarkable, and I am absolutely sure he's, he's there for the long term. Um, but because of where I am in my life and my career, I didn't want to make a long-term commitment, so I agreed to serve as the interim commissioner while they searched for a permanent commissioner. And in January, they finally brought a, a commissioner on board, and he asked me to stay on to continue helping. Uh, as part of my uh, directive while I was serving as commissioner, I was charged with looking at how the department was functioning because it was a new entity within the city. Um, and I felt like there was a lack of focus on the engineering part of our projects. So I recommended that we uh, stand up an engineering group, um, pull the engineers who were sprinkled throughout the organization into a focused group, and then add whatever additional talent we needed uh, to round out the, the group. Um, and so finally, uh, through the budget process, the office was approved, the positions were approved. And so now um, I'm serving temporarily as the Deputy Commissioner of Engineering while I search for my replacement again, <laughs> somebody who wants the position permanently. Um, and then we'll have a, a department that has a strategy and planning group that gets the, the concept work started, the engineering group that helps with the design, our capital program group that helps with actually building, delivering the projects, and then our maintenance group, which keeps things going forevermore. So we'll be a well-rounded department. Congratulations to you for identifying the need and then getting all the right people together and establishing that, um, what would you call it? Not an office, but that's a division. Division. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. I am very curious, and you and I were chatting before the show, you've had the ability to participate in and I'm sure just been around a multitude of, of development in your career. And I'm curious, as an engineer, what is one of the most interesting projects that you've been involved in, if you can share? Wow, that's hard. To, it's hard to pick. It's hard to pick. Probably the most visible and transformational one uh, that I participated in early in my uh, career here in the Atlanta metro area was getting to work on Centennial Olympic Park and other facilities associated with the, the Olympics. Um, but I don't know if you were in Atlanta at the time, but that area was a pretty rundown area with a lot of industrial development. And it was not a very welcoming place, yet it was in the heart of the city. Mm -hmm. 
And so when the uh, Olympic uh, bid was won and the, the team was pulled together, one of the uh, first efforts that was made was to identify a, a place to create a place. Uh -huh. And so that uh, area was selected and there was a lot of behind the scenes work to assemble all the property and uh, get the right concepts in place for uh, something that would be transformational, not just in and of itself, but for the whole downtown area. Right. And so I got to work with the uh, very famous architect, Oscar Harris, who had the company Turner Associates. He's the one who designed that beautiful leaf pattern that became the symbol uh, of the Atlanta Olympics. Mm -hmm. um, and he was very uh, instrumental in the look and the feel and the layout and the, the use of the topography of the land to make a remarkable space. I was in Atlanta during that time. However, I wasn't old enough to really observe or understand the things that you mentioned. I do recall the transformation, but it was just kind of like that. I live south of the airport. 1996, take me back to where you were in your career at that time. Sure. So um, I was about 20 years into my career. And in 1990, I started my own uh, engineering, planning and engineering firm. So we were still a, a young pup of a, of a company at the time. <laughs> but we had a lot of great relationships and had done a lot of uh, interesting work, both on the public side and the private side. And so uh, through that network of contacts that we had, we, um, we had the opportunity to be invited to participate in some, some of those very significant projects, um, particularly for the Olympics. Mm. So we not only got to work on, and we were actually the only engineers involved in the conceptualizing of uh, Centennial Park, which was very, very interesting. But we got to work on a lot of other projects. So um, we helped uh, figure out and uh, design and sign all of the park and ride lots that allowed people to park yeah. peripherally and then ride the buses into town. We worked on a number of the different stadii. Um, we also, uh, probably the most... Um, Wait, you said stadii? Yeah, so, so, so everybody's familiar with the big Olympic stadium, right, stadium. But there was also you know, the tennis venue, and, and there was um, some venues down in Savannah for the, the rowing mm -hmm. and some of the other events. So we, we had the opportunity, we did a lot of traffic planning. Oh. And so we got to do work at a lot of different uh, parts. Of oh, CDI is what you're saying. Were, no. were you saying Stadii? Oh, Stadii. Yeah. That's, a, that's the multiple of stadium. Okay. Sorry. I never heard that. And I was like, Stadii. Yeah. Thank so you. I'm two, sorry. Two, two, a stadium plus a stadium, stadium is Stadii. Thank you. I learned something new. Yeah. Yes, that is a good point. But, um, but probably the most interesting thing, and actually where we're sitting is very significant because um, two weeks after the uh, Olympic Games are the Paralympic Games. Mm -hmm. And one of the venues for the Paralympics was right here in this building where they played the table tennis. Uh -huh. And it was remarkable. It was life-changing. And we, um, my whole company, got to serve as volunteers. Um, we actually built uh, ramps to help get the athletes off the buses that brought them from in town to this facility. Uh, we got to be inside and see what was going on. We got to visit the wheelchair hospital wow. because the, the athletes are so enthusiastic that they often 
you know, have parts flying off of their wheelchairs. Yes. And um, I have three children who were young at the time. And I think it was life-changing for them to have the experience to view mm -hmm. and interact with some of these athletes who are able-bodied but in a different way than they were. Um, and I think it was, it was very important for this community uh, to have that opportunity. And we're seated in the Gas South District now, but at the time it was, was it Infinite Energy then? No, it was, was even before it was called before Infinite Energy. I don't recall. I think it was, it was just the Gwinnett. Energy something. Just the, yeah, the, the Gwinnett Convention Center or the Gwinnett Center. Speaking of which, and then I'll, I'll kind of jump off the engineering because I told you I could talk about things and projects for a long time with you. Um, as we're seated here, and you know, this is still undergoing a lot of work here to uh, be the end all be all, which will be fantastic. I'm sure that you, because of your knowledge driving by, you know, you're in your mind operationally where the project is at. So what is it like to bring something to life that is this enormous? So it, it was really um, interesting, and I was actually I was still working in Gwinnett at the time when uh, they were imagining what this place could be. And I've been active uh, in a number of the different venues here. You know, my children were all involved in music and theater and dance, and and so spent time um, in the Performing Arts Center. Uh, I was on the board. I was actually chair of the board of the Hudgens Arts Center for a while. So I've been. I've, I've kind of touched all the different venues in one way or another. Um, and so uh, it always seemed like this place could be more, but it took some very bold people in the community who had great vision to really figure out what this place could be uh, for, the, for the county as a whole, for the, really for the region. Uh, I think it's a regionally significant uh, venue. And of course, from a transportation perspective, I'm very excited, and you probably heard the other day that Gwinnett County got um, a grant from the federal government for the transit center that will be not far from here down near the Gwinnett Place Mall. But that is part of a network to bring people, uh, when, when the network is done and the bus rapid transit system that will come up Satellite Boulevard is done, you will actually be able to get on transit at the airport and come directly here. Wow. Um, which I think will be another layer of transformation. So the people who are coming to the hotel or coming mm -hmm. to a convention will have multiple choices for how to get here. You can get here from the uh, airport now by transit. Mm -hmm. It's just a little bit more complicated. You have to, you have to do a transfer. Uh, <laughs> but someday, someday it'll be a much more direct uh, opportunity. opportunity. Well, I said I'm going to get off it, but I might not just because you mentioned you had a long time experience with MARTA. I did. And I'm going to say what that stands for, for those that aren't local and don't know what MARTA is, but that's the Metropolitan Atlanta Regional Transit Authority. And most people are probably familiar with, I mean, if you've ever gone and seen a concert in Atlanta, you ride the trains, correct? Correct. So what was your involvement with MARTA and what was your takeaway so I was brought in by the general manager to be the assistant general manager of capital projects. And our charge was to take the ideas and build them. Um, and so uh, we have different buckets of projects. So we have what are called state of good repair. Everybody wants everything that we already have to be working. So we are replacing rail that wears out or 
uh, fixing station platforms that, that need to be updated, thing, projects like that. But then there are also these new transformational projects um, that they broke ground about a month ago uh, on the first bus rapid transit line that will be in downtown Atlanta that will run from approximately the old Fulton County Stadium, Olympic Stadium area, uh, through the heart of downtown and back, mm -hmm. uh, mostly in a dedicated lane, mm -hmm. so it will be faster than a, a traditional bus ride, yeah. with amenities that, again, take it a step up from uh, a typical bus ride. Right, like um, Wi-Fi? Like Wi-Fi, <laughs> yes, like information signs at the state, they're called stations, not bus stops, because mm -hmm. they have shelters and they have these other amenities. Uh, there'll be off-board ticketing, so it's faster to get on and off. Uh, you'll have signs that tell you where the um, where the other uh, uh, bus uh, BRT buses are, oh. so you know how long you're going to be waiting. Um, they're going to run more frequently than a typical bus, so it's going to be pretty important for the downtown uh, circulation. Yeah. Um, and so someday we're going to have a, a BRT line out here as well. BRT. Yeah, bus rapid transit. Thank you for sharing that. You know, a lot of people, they think, because I remember, you know, when they were brought to voting and things like that, I understand the pros and cons. But not everybody, you know, a lot of people do it to be eco-friendly. They, they ride, you know, buses or trains. They do it. They might have transportation, but it takes too long in your car. You know, why not? So I think it is very exciting, like you mentioned, and the connectivity is really important. Correct. And um, Gwinnett is getting ready to roll out their new transit plan. I happen to have the opportunity to have a sneak preview because I'm on the transit board here in Gwinnett. Um, public has had a lot of input to what the new plan is going to look like, but it has a lot of coverage across the entire county mm -hmm. uh, to provide different types of options for different people. You know, even if you own a car, mm -hmm. um, if you have to commute downtown even a couple of days a week, wouldn't you rather sit on a bus, let somebody else do the driving, answer read emails. a book, answer emails, surf the net, whatever you want to do? Um, plus, you have the advantage if you're in a transit vehicle, you're in that HOV lane. So you're not only not having to deal with doing the driving yourself, but you're also getting there faster right. because you're in that, that dedicated lane. lane. So, <laughs> yeah, there are, there are a lot of reasons why transit, um, you know, is, is a good option for a lot of people. What was the most bizarre thing that you encountered, you know, during your time at Marta? It could be a, a train was derailed. Um, you know, you see things on movies that I'm sure don't actually ever happen. You know, any bizarre flood issue, a, a deer on the tracks, <laughs> like so, something yeah. interesting. Something interesting. Yeah. So the interesting things are, are almost never happy things. Um, so uh, I would say we, we struggle a lot with um, debris that um, the, the authority can clean the tracks that we control, mm -hmm. but the line often runs adjacent to uh, freight rail lines. Uh -huh. um, and there's a lot of debris, a lot of dead uh, organic material, like dead plants and things mm -hmm. like that, that in the summertime catch fire. Holy smokes. Yeah, literally holy smokes. Smokes. That's right. <laughs> and so, you know, we've been, we, Marta has, has struggled at times, not because there's anything wrong with the MARTA system, but on the adjacent track, there's a fire and we can't run past a fire wow. because of the, the high risk. 
So we, you know, I, I continue to say we because I do have a passion right. for MARTA and for transit. So, you know, we, we struggle because people don't always understand or have the facts of what's happening. Mm. Um, and so um, stuff like that happens, and they think Mart is not providing good service when, in fact, we're trying to keep them safe. Absolutely. But uh, the most exciting project I've worked on while I was there. So there was a the the if you're coming north on the train line from the airport at the Lindbergh station, the the track forms a Y, and you have one line that goes up to Doraville mm -hmm. in the northeast part of of the city. And then you have the other line that goes up to Sandy Springs and, and beyond, uh, kind of goes northwest. It goes up through Georgia 400 area. And um, there's a section of track just before the split that was very worn out, worn out to the part that they, they have what's called a slow order where they run the trains at a much lower speed through there mm -hmm. to make sure that they're safe because safety is always the most important thing. And while I was there, we had a project to replace that track. But you know, it was the first time ever in the history of MARTA that we actually stopped service. We literally cut out a section of track. Right. Yeah. And we ran buses to connect people from the last stop to the, the to the other end of mm -hmm. the the uh, stop you know, the area that was being serviced. But the uh, the contractors did an amazing job and in a long weekend um, they replaced everything from the the gravel to the ties to every, you know the to rails the rail itself, yeah. to the switches. I mean, the entire thing was brand new, mm -hmm. and it's a tremendous amount of work. They worked twenty four hours a day. It was in February. It was oh, very cold. cold. Yeah, yeah. But they worked. They worked through it, and um, it was remarkable to be to part witness, of that and yeah. to watch that. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I have no idea what it looks like in real life in my mind. I'm just trying to picture that. And it sounds almost like a surgical procedure. It is. You know, they have to be so precise. And I can only imagine in molding those metals together where you said mm -hmm. the, the piece, I guess you would weld the tracks. I have no idea. Correct. But... It, it, there's a lot and of stake to be, and they have fails, to be, so. yeah and they have to be perfect the welds have yeah. to be perfect everything has to be level and aligned and there are a lot of lot of, and you know of course everything has to be powered down you can't have any power nearby right so there are things that they can't test until they put it all back together yeah and they flip the switch, switch. back on you know so it's it it's a very interesting process they've now done a second section on uh the Georgia 400 line, mm -hmm. and they have one more section to replace in this cycle of uh, rail upgrades. But it's a big deal. There's a lot of work that goes on that most people never see or think about, but yeah. it's all about keeping a, a high-functioning system and keeping it safe. Well, thank you for your dedication mm -hmm. still to this day, and thank you for sharing a little bit of a, a peek inside. Um, you are very passionate about what you do, Marsha. That is evident. Why don't you tell me where that inspiration came from when you were a youngster deciding to pursue this career field? Oh, that's a great question. So um, just to give perspective, I've been in the field, and it's hard for me to even say this out, say this out loud, but I've been in the field 50 years now. Um, it's shocking to me that I'm old enough to <laughs> be doing this for 50 years. But when I was a child, um, I was very good in math. And I had a teacher who recognized that and really, uh, my sixth grade teacher really encouraged me. And she said, you know, when I'll never forget, she said, when you get to, to we called it uh, junior high school, here mm -hmm. we call it middle school. We got to junior high school. She said, when you get there 
and you start liking boys, you're going you're gonna to think you have to act dumb so the boys will like you. She said, don't do that. She said, you just be as smart as you can be. And that really stuck with me. And so, you know, through junior high school and high school, you know, I was on the math team. I, I really pursued that because I loved doing it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, there was something just connected with me. Back in those days, the only careers that were really discussed with women who had that kind of knowledge or skill was to either become a math teacher or to become an actuary. Mm. Had no interest whatsoever in being an actuary. I'm not interested I'm in I'm nodding it. like I know what that is, but can so you please the, tell me what it is? So, so the actuary is the person who figures out the tables of like how when you're going to die for life insurance companies. They do a lot wow. more than that, okay. but that's yeah. one aspect of what they 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 do a lot of data crunching mm-hmm. and predictive, predict, you know, do predictions uh, of different things based on... Um, you know, where you live and the climate and, Mm. you know, um, it's interesting in a way, but it just did not appeal to me at all. I'm not a sit behind the desk, crunch numbers kind of girl. Mm -hmm. And I like the concept of teaching, but I tried it when I was in graduate school. And what I found was um, if somebody, if anybody wanted help, I was going to jump in and help them. Mm -hmm. And so instead of having you know, a two or three hour class to teach and maybe two, three, four hours of office hours. I was spending 25, 30 hours a week because I couldn't say no to anybody. And that doesn't bode well. So um, I started looking around for how else I could use this passion. And I didn't really know exactly what an engineer was, but what I did know about it, it really intrigued me. Mm -hmm. And so I was very young when I went to college. And so um, my parents were concerned about me pursuing engineering. So what I ended up doing was going to an engineering college and getting my bachelor's in math mm-hmm. so I could kind of be around the engineering and take some engineering classes. But in that process, I discovered I was really on fire for yeah. that. And so I went back to graduate school and I got I went a couple of times. I'm addicted to school. I'm actually in school now, too. I'm addicted to school. And Lifelong so, learner. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, I got my first master's degree in transportation planning and engineering, but I always wanted to be a civil engineer once I knew what it was. And so then I went back to school again and I got my degree in civil engineering. From Princeton. From Princeton. What is that? Oh, it's the Tigers? Tigers, yes. Knew Princeton it. Tigers. Oh, shout out to JT Wu. He's a graduate. Yes, uh, young he is. professional. You know JT. I do. Yay. Amazing. I do. Remarkable young man. He sure is. Absolutely. Wow. I am just in awe. We haven't even gotten to all of your your accolades here yet. Um, So you said you're on fire. You caught the bug. Now let's get a little bit personal. But wait, hold on. I've got our listeners on the edge of our seat and our producer, Dan, too, because you know what time it is. It's time to pay homage to those who make this series possible. We'll be right back, Marsha. Sounds good. NEMA is a full-service logistics company that provides trucking, warehousing, and expedited deliveries for the paper machine clothing industry. They offer a full line of services, including delivery within the 48 contiguous states, Canada and Mexico, plus importing and exporting, air freight forwarding services, foreign trade zone warehousing, and many more services to handle your global logistics needs. NEMA is a proud sponsor of the Celebrating Powerhouse Women podcast series. We know running a business is hard. There are so many things that need to get done and you don't have the time, the resources, the experience, or you just don't want to do it yourself. At Sourced, we have your back. Office. 
We support leaders of companies with all their back office challenges that weigh them down, whether it's accounting, talent acquisition, administrative support, marketing, or human resources. Our team of experts at Sourced will make your life easy and your back office effortless. To see how we can help you, check us out at GetSourced.com. All right, and welcome back, folks. I'm sorry I left you hanging there here uh, with Marsha Anderson Bomar in studio. I'm your host, Amanda Pierce Marmalejo. And before the break, we were talking all about your extraordinary efforts um, within your career, and you were telling us about schooling. I would like for you to share with us your experience of being the extraordinary woman engineer. In, in the title of the article was Changing Your World, True Stories of Women Engineers. So actually, it's an interesting tie into something we talked about earlier. Um, uh, the American Society of Civil Engineers, uh, when they um, uh, had the opportunity to have their first woman serve as president of the organization. It's a very old organization. It's uh, from the, well, we're getting ready in a couple of years. We'll be 175 years old. So it's been around a while. And it had been under all-male leadership for a very long time. In fact, there was a period of time when women were not allowed to be part of societies like that. Mm -hmm. But um, the world has changed dramatically. Thank um, goodness. Yes. Uh, and so um, back in the 90s, um, when the, the organization had their first female president, somebody else um, associated with the organization decided to write a book about, she called it Extraordinary Women, um, and uh, invited a number of us to participate and it was uh, really to tell a story about a project that was very meaningful to us. Um, and uh, the intent of the book was really to inspire other women to want to be part of our party um, and, and to come and join the engineering world. And interestingly enough, the project that I uh, addressed was Centennial Olympic Park. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, uh, yeah, so it, it it's... Um, it's a great honor to be part of that. Uh, and it really was part of what inspired me to really step out a little bit more in terms of me, you know, helping other women succeed. You know, there's, there are too many tales of women who get to the top and then pull the ladder up behind them mm. um, or do worse. Um, and I did not want to be that person. So it was really important to me to find ways to, Get back. You know, well, to keep reaching back and, and pulling other people up and creating those opportunities. I literally had that written down, reaching um, back. So that's amazing. We're on the same, yeah. same yeah. page, literally. Literally. <laughs> hey, I'm coming out with the one-liners all day today, guys. Um, that is very important. And I've never heard that term. It's, I, I got a visual when you said it, pulling the ladder up behind them. Um, many women who I've had the pleasure of interviewing talk about the importance of reaching back and preparing, you know, the next generation, not as as competition, but as who you want seated in that in that chair once you're out of it. No one's taking your job. Retirement might be on the horizon or shift like you are doing uh, in the roles that you were interim. But the importance of reaching back and mentorship is something that is is real. So tell me about someone who was impactful in your world, a mentor that kind of resonates with you. So I already told you about my sixth grade teacher. Probably the next most impactful person was my high school geometry teacher because as good as I was in math before, mm -hmm. for some reason geometry and I did not click with each mm. other. And in New York State, which is where I, I did all my uh, education uh, up through college, um, 
we have these standardized tests called regents exams. At the end of every school year, depending on the subject matter, there's a whole bunch of exams that you get to take. And by the middle of the school year, I was failing geometry. And I was panicked because I had envisioned myself as this great math whiz and my whole life was kind of laid out in front of me in my own mind based on that ability. And it just wasn't happening. And my geometry teacher, you know, spent extra time with me. He gave me additional resources. And somewhere in the next couple of weeks, something just clicked. And all of a sudden, it was easy. And I was flying through it. And I got 100 on my exam. And he sent me a little plastic trophy <laughs> to <laughs> celebrate. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it was it really it was a pivotal moment because where where would I have gone if my dream had failed me? You know? Right. So that that was very important. And I've you know, I've had I've had people who've sewn into me along the way professionally. Um, I had a mentor and I won't mention names um, because he started out as a very positive force in my life. But at some point. Um, I started having a lot of success, and I don't know what changed for him, but he became, I would say, an adversary. Mm. Um, and it only made me want to be better, um, and to it, it also put a focus on me not ever being like that. Mm -hmm. You know, I did never want to be that person. So um, sometimes a mentor helps you by that positive training. Sometimes or, a mentor... Yeah gets you to see things in a different light and, and you recognize what you don't want to be or you don't want to do. So um, not all mentor experiences are necessarily positive in the moment, but you can learn, no matter what the experience, you can always learn something uh, along the way. Takeaway. Wow. I was really thinking about that as you were saying that because that is very true. You can also learn from uh, the not-so-positive experiences. Right. Now, share with our listeners a little bit about Marsha personally. You are a mother and a grandmother and a wife. Congratulations. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah, so um, I met my children's daddy when we were students at Princeton. Uh, and uh, we married right after he graduated. Um, and uh, we were living, we continued living in New Jersey for a while. And then for a variety of family reasons, we decided to relocate to the Atlanta area. Mm -hmm. So we actually arrived here uh, February 22nd uh, of 1984, which was the weekend after Gwinnett Place Mall opened. Oh, it wow. opened Valentine's weekend of 1984. So when we got here, Pleasant Hill Road was a two-lane road. Um, big sections of Holcomb Bridge Road weren't even paved. Peachtree Industrial Boulevard was a little two-lane road. and. Wow. There was not much north of the perimeter uh, at that point. So Gwinnett was a very, when I, when I moved here, the county as a whole had about 187,000 people living in the county. Now there are more students in our school system than there were people living here at the time. Wow. We're right about at a million people in Gwinnett now. Mm -hmm. So um, it was a very different kind of place. And having come from... New York metropolitan 24-hour-a-day kind of place, it was a big change, change for me. Yeah. And it was not all positive because it was uh, a place, you know, there wasn't a Kroger yet, and so there was no 24-7 shopping. 
it was still a place where things were pretty black and white. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wasn't used to that because of where I lived, you know, that was not, that was not how we behaved. Mm-hmm. Um, but I saw some really rapid positive changes uh, in my first few years here. And by the time my, when I moved here, I had one child. Uh, he was born up in New Jersey. Um, by the time he got to school, we already had a lot of different cultures represented and a lot of different languages being spoken as first languages with the students in the schools. And so I saw some really rapid change and very positive change. And for me, that was that was what I needed to know that I had made a good decision to move here was that we were becoming much more of a melting pot um, because I wanted my children exposed to that. I didn't want them to live in a place that was... Um, a bubble. A bubble or divisive or anything like, you know, like that. So, um, uh, you know, that was, that was a big change. And then um, I was blessed to have two more children, one of whom holds a, a record. He was born in the front seat of my car at the entrance to the Country Club of the South. Holy smokes. Yeah. Again. Yeah, we were on our way to the hospital and he just couldn't wait. And so uh, the address on his birth certificate is the country club's address. Is it? It is. And I had, speaking of development, okay, so... Okay, so hold on one second. I'm not a mom, so I'm not unfamiliar with the birthing process. But so you went into labor in the front, in the... Or just no. like your water broke? Well, so no, I, I, my water broke and I went into labor while I was home. And I just felt like, having been through it once before, I just felt like it was happening faster. Mm-hmm. So I suggested we get in the car. It was go. it was after midnight. Let's get in the car and go to the hospital because it just feels like things are happening faster. Um, and even faster than I imagined. I had nine contractions and a baby. Um, the, the Yeah. Sounds <laughs> like so a, pl- da- a pleasant dad, birth, though. It was delightful. Yeah. Dad caught the baby. We oh stopped. That's why we stopped at the country club. He said, just don't pop the baby out yeah. until we stop Stop. the car. So he caught the baby and wrapped him, took off his, it was 23 degrees. It was in January, wrapped the baby up in his sweater. Um, but the interesting thing was when I started my own company, which was just a few years later, um, my guardian angel client was Jim Cowart, who was a very famous developer in the Atlanta metro area, a very wonderful person. And, um, interestingly or ironically enough, he was the developer of Country Club of the South. So when I started doing work for him and I told him the story, story. he thought that was just (laughs) a a hoot. So, um, yeah, so so for the first 21 years of my son's life, every year we would go and take his picture in front of the sign, which they've now taken down. So I have pictures of a piece of history. Right. And... uh, but I made him, he made me promise he would only come on his 21st birthday if I promised it was the last, the last time I would make him do that. <laughs> That's so great. You could do yeah. a collage of, of right. years. And then your third And then child. my third child. So my daughter um, uh, was born. Uh, I actually switched hospitals and I was going down to Piedmont Hospital. And I actually slept through my labor. Um, <laughs> I, had, I, I had difficulty getting pregnant, but I had really easy delivery. So... Um, my son, one of my sons, woke up with a nightmare and uh, came into the room to kind of get Talk some comfort. Her, yeah. And we always, there's a children's book called Go Away Bad Dreams. So I took him back to his bed and I did the, the stroking of the eyes and the telling of happy things that, you, that come out of that book. And I came back to the bedroom and I said, you know, I think my contractions are really close together. We need to go. Mm-hmm. Um, it was already about um, almost six o'clock in the morning. And we were worried about traffic, but we jumped in the car and we raced down to Piedmont Hospital. 
Um, my husband almost forgot that I was there because he was racing to go to the uh, labor and delivery area, and I couldn't walk as fast as he could because I was in labor. Right. <laughs> but we got there, and 13 minutes after I got to the hospital, I had that baby. So we made it with, with a little hair uh, of time left. At least you but made it there. Yeah. Yes. But in between baby number two and three, my husband had a bout with cancer. And um, the uh, oncologist said that we could keep trying because we wanted more children. Mm -hmm. She said, um, you know, any child that could survive or any sperm that could survive chemotherapy will make one hell of a baby. There you go. And that baby, my daughter, is now a Navy officer mm -hmm. who has served on a submarine. So I think she was right. I'll say. <laughs> but I'm, I'm blessed with three just great, great kids. And then um, I remarried uh, much later in life. And I have three great step. Uh, or bonus children, as I call them. Um, and my husband has three grandchildren, and now I have two bio-grandbabies who are fabulous. Aww. Yeah. What is it, uh, you know, everybody always talks about the difference in being a grandparent versus a parent, you know, and they say that, hey, the grandparents, really, they get to have all the fun. What would you say is one of the most rewarding parts about being a grandparent? I, oh, boy, that's a tough question because <laughs> I love everything about it, even the exhausting parts of it. So there are two aspects that are important to me. One is the time with the, the children. Um, I love to do anything and everything with them, whether it's taking them someplace fun or baking cookies or you know playing in the sprinkler, whatever. I just love my time with them. And my they were both born uh, one very early in COVID, one later in COVID. Mm. So the older one, of course, we spent a lot of time video chatting. Right. So we still, we have a very special video chat relationship oh. because she's old enough now to understand filters and planes. Oh and yes. That's all a, that stuff. That's a yeah. lot of fun. And my, my grandson's just getting old enough to begin to understand all of that now. But, um, but the other part of it that I love is, you know, being able to support my kids and, um, one of the things I love to do, cause it's, it's partly selfish, but partly you know, a gift to them. But when I come to visit, I always try to carve out a time where the parents go away. Yeah. And I have my precious solo time with the kids, which I love. But then they get a chance to catch yeah. up because everybody needs a break, no matter how much you love your kids. Share you, a meal you, without interruption. Yeah, yeah. Get <laughs> get an actual night's sleep. Yeah. You know, go somewhere, drink a lot of have Benadryl an and beverage. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and just sleep, sleep, sleep. Yeah, so, um, yeah, it's wonderful. I wish they lived closer. I was going to ask you, are they local? No, they're not. Um, my daughter, my, as I mentioned, my daughter's in the Navy, and the Navy is sending her for her MBA. She's at Yale. And so, she, yeah, unfortunately, Princeton doesn't have a business <laughs> school, so she couldn't go to Princeton. But um, so she's at Yale. So they're in Connecticut at the moment, mm -hmm. um, and probably high likelihood that they'll uh, end up in San Diego when she finishes school in you know, goes back to active duty. What is your daughter's name? Alexis. Alexis, thank yeah. you for your service. And she's got she's got a great social media presence. She does um, a lot of work around mental health in the military. Very important. Um, yeah, she's on Instagram. All her her socials. She's Mill Mama on the Run. Ooh, yeah, gotta love it when you give her a shout out on on the Insta. Absolutely, I'm writing it down so I can follow her. Mill Mama on the Run. Right, yeah, <laughs> she's a powerhouse in her own right. Absolutely. Well, hey, she comes from good genes. Thanks. I'm curious how you apply. You said that you're a strategic person, obviously, by nature and mathematical. To me, that sounds like a lot of analytics. And I myself have analysis paralysis. 
And I'm just curious, are you able to apply apply those tactics to benefit your family and personal life or do they pose a detriment at times because of your analytics? So most of the time it's a positive. Um, you know, I had a, being a mom with three children and, and a husband and then being a single mom with three kids for a long time um, and then having my own business. And while I had my own business, I also at different times owned two different restaurants. Um, so... <laughs> And I've always been very involved in my professional organizations. So the analytical skill of how to put that puzzle together and how to have time to do all the different pieces of it, I didn't always get it right, but at least I had the tools to try to figure out a way to make all those pieces work together. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's worked well. Although I will tell you, we had a funny conversation. Just yesterday, my, my daughter was posting something about... Um, uh, all the math in her program, and you know, she when she graduated from high school and went to college um, at UGA, you can test out of math by passing a particular exam because it demonstrates that you have the capacity that you need to do your course of study. So she did. So um, she didn't take any more math classes in college, and then she's been out of college for a, a good number of years. Um, so she said, you know, this it's kind of tough getting back into yeah. the math stuff and and I'm right now I'm working on my PhD and I said I chose to do a qualitative dissertation instead of a quantitative dissertation uh, cuz I just I'm at the point where I don't have the patience for the the numbers game mm -hmm. so much anymore um, I use it when I have to I'm treasurer of an organization so I can still do the math right. but if I have the option of doing something that's more conversational um, I'd rather do that. Qualitative, not quantitative. Yes, ma'am. So what are you getting your PhD? So in? I'm at the University of Georgia mm -hmm. um, in the College of Environment and Design. And I'll be getting, I think my degree is going to be called Environmental Planning and, and Design. Nice. Um, I'm doing my research in the transit planning area. So, For anybody out there listening that's curious about, you know, any any variety of the fields that we've spoken about, <laughs> As a mother of a daughter, and, and after you sharing your experience about wanting to pursue uh, engineering, what would you share with that young lady listening about how she could get started in the field or sure. just pursue? So I think, I think it is a misconception that you have to be a stellar math student or a stellar star, uh, science student. You have to have an appreciation for it. You have to be able to do you know, some of it. <clears throat> but... It's more about problem solving than just pure math. So if you are somebody who likes to solve problems um, and you're able to think somewhat logically, you probably have a good foundation for considering to be an engineer hmm. uh, because that's a, so much of what we do. Now, there are people who really hone in on some of the complex design and they're deep into the math. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, there's a portion of engineering that's like that. But so much of engineering is putting puzzles together yeah. and putting the right people together and uh, just being logical and, and process driven. Um, so it's, you know, I think it's a much, I think it's a fascinating field because you can take it in so many different directions. And over the course of my career, I have specialized in so many different things at different times because my personal interests changed. Um, so it's not a career where you're going to be doing the same thing every day of your life for the rest yeah. of your life. I'm in. It's not that kind of career at all. 
um, there are so many different ways you can take your knowledge and skills. And as they grow, it just opens up even more possibilities of how you can um, take that, that talent, yeah. uh, talent and, and deploy it. Very nice. I would be remiss, Marcia, if I didn't just share with our listeners a little bit about some of the awards and recognitions um, for yourself. They include the WTS Woman of the Year. We are here in Gwinnett County, so the Gwinnett Chamber of Commerce Public Servant Award. I can see that. Also, what is the uh, Gwinnett Chamber's Athena Award? I'm not familiar with so that. Th so they don't give that out anymore, but a long time ago they used to give out an award, and it was for a woman who was um, noteworthy uh, in business, in her profession, and in um, the community. Mm. So kind of a, a well-rounded contributor. And I wonder if it's like um, the Greek goddess Athena, kind of. Okay. <laughs> well, I would hope so. <laughs> <laughs> and also um, the Gwinnett Clean and Beautiful Green Business Leader of the Decade so I'm very passionate about sustainability, and I've been a very loud, squeaky voice in the community. Um, when I was honored with that award, I was still sitting on the Duluth City Council, and part of my mission as a council person was to get us as a city and the citizens of our community more informed about all the aspects of sustainability, not just recycling cardboard and plastic bottles and, and aluminum cans, but sustainability is a much bigger topic than that. Yeah. And so I was always trying to present more information and more aspects of what sustainability can look like because each one of us has an opportunity to make a difference yes. in that world. Absolutely. Leave it better than we found it. Absolutely. For sure. Especially if we want it to be around for your grandchildren. That's and great motivation. That's right. Um, additionally, you were awarded the Society of Women Engineers Entrepreneur of the Year. That's very exciting. And then also, you were recognized by the University of Massachusetts, Amherst. Oh, Amherst. Yeah. Amherst, yes. Um, ITE chapter. Uh, tell us a little bit about that Transportation Leadership Award. I'm not sure which one. Oh, so, she's got so many, she's <laughs> unsure which one. I believe it. Sorry. Well, this one here is in 2009, Marcia. <laughs> did that ring a bell? So, uh, yeah. So, leadership affecting women in transportation and remarkable contributions to your field. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I've just, I've just been very blessed um, to, and I've worked very hard. I have, um, but be, it's all because I care. Um, and I, I do want to leave the, the world better. For those who come behind me, um, you know the the being the only woman in the room for a great deal of the early part of my career um, could have been detrimental. It could have been something that kind of caused me to retreat. Um, but somehow I and and I was I and you'll probably laugh when I say this, but I was an introvert, um, which I clearly am not <laughs> anymore. Um, so, so we can, we can, uh, transform, but, uh, it was really hard for me to take those first steps out of my comfort zone, but I saw how important it was because when I started college, there were 1600 students in my college, seven of them were women, four of them in my entering freshman class. Wow. Yeah. So you can be sure that I was the only or almost the only woman everywhere all through school. And we didn't have, 
I can't think of a female professor that I had while I was there. Um, so yeah, so it was a very different looking world mm -hmm. back then. It's it's better. It's not where it needs to be. Women in most of the uh, engineering fields, women still typically only represent 20 to 30% of the workforce. Mm -hmm. uh, environmental engineering is different. There are many more women in environmental engineering, but there are a lot of fields with very few women still in, in engineering. Um, so I just felt like I needed to Be a voice. live the life, mm -hmm. you know, and do things differently to... We, we tend to... Um, in organizations, we tend to gravitate or have people gravitate to us who are like us. You know, and, and corporations are examples. You know, they want to bring new people on board. You're most comfortable with somebody who's a lot like you, but you never affect change if everybody's the same. So, you know, I did crazy things like I appointed people who had no experience to do what I was giving them, the task I was giving them to do. And I said, I'll come alongside of you and help make sure you have what you need to do it. But I have to bring in somebody different to start breaking down that barrier and, and let you start learning and trying. So I did that a lot in my professional organizations to bring new people on board and get new people involved and help them be successful. And so some of the recognition that I received was because of that kind of work. Sounds like you are shaking things up and you are a disruptor in the best way. That's the nicest and thing you could say to me. You're applying <laughs> the, the DE&I before DE&I was a thing. A thing. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. That is very important. Out of curiosity, would you guess that the percentage, the low percentage of female engineers is because nobody is pursuing that career field? Or do you still think that it's a stigma of the, you know, boys club versus women in the industry? Uh, I think it's a variety of things. I think that um, there are still educators who don't understand um, what engineering is. So students in middle school and high school don't always get the opportunity to be exposed to that as a possibility. Mm -hmm. I think that's, a, that's part of the problem. Um, I think that when you uh, when you get through, if you do get into college and you get out, I think that there is still a lot of old boy stuff going on. Um, I think it's much better. Um, one of the things I, I worry about sometimes is that some of the younger, youngest generation that's out there working right now, um, they think that it's so good that they don't think there's still a problem. And so I think you can get complacent if you feel that way. But things are not good enough that we can be complacent. There's still some vigilance that, that is needed to keep the door open and keep opening it wider so you know women and other underrepresented populations feel more welcome uh, in our space. And so um, that's part of my current mission is to really work with the, the younger women, not to turn them into you know bra-burning protesters, but <laughs> to, to help, that's my generation, yeah. but, but to really work with them from the inside out to understand and to, to put a critical eye uh, to their, whether it's their company uh, or their organization or even in their um, professional, uh, professional work outside of the office, you know, whatever they're doing, to just kind of keep an open eye uh, and uh, think about whether the, you know, whether the comments that are being made and the discussions that are being had 
are creating a welcoming environment. Mm -hmm. um, and, and they need to be spokespersons for the good experiences they've had, but also the challenges that still remain so that other people are motivated to keep the, keep the charge on. Yeah. I'm curious, who is an engineer or someone? I keep saying engineer. Who is someone? Let's not say an engineer. Who is someone that you admire greatly and why? I'm going to get in trouble not with your all the geometry teacher. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to get in trouble with all the people I don't name. Just one. So We're just saying one, folks. Yeah. Okay. So I'll give you one, and and um, uh, she is remarkable. So currently, the president of the American Society of Women Engineers, uh, sorry, the American Society of Civil <laughs> Engineers, is a woman uh, who has held some remarkable positions. You know, in her career, she was um, the head of the New York State Thruway for a while. She the Tappan Zee Bridge, the huge project that was built um, in New York, she was the, the head of that project. She's worked on the public side very successfully. She's worked on the private side. But she is such a transformational leader. And that organization, for many years, has published what's called the uh, report card for infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And she has been such a strong um, spokesperson for that. The organization has... It was actually part of what led to the passage of the bipartisan infrastructure law that is now bringing all of this money to all the communities for these great infrastructure projects like the transit center yeah. that I mentioned. Um, but she's such a visionary and she's um, smart and creative, but she's also a force to be reckoned with. And so the when that bill was passed, the president formed an advisory uh, National Infrastructure Advisory Council, NIAC. And she was uh, one of the first people appointed, and she is chairing um, the president's uh, advisory council. Wow. So, you know, f at this stage of my career, um, to look around me and to see somebody like that, it's so inspiring mm -hmm. for me. And she's younger than I am. I will make sure she knows that I know that. <laughs> uh, almost everybody is younger than I am. And so, uh, yeah, I just celebrated the first anniversary of my 70th birthday. So uh, Happy belated. <laughs> thank you, thank you. You're welcome. So um, uh, she, is, she still has a lot of uh, great contributions to make, but yeah. she has had a remarkable career, and I really, really admire her. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. Now, Marsha. Yes, I prepared you ahead of time for this. First, I'd like to ask you, is there anything that we did not cover that you would like to share with our listeners? Hmm. I was kind of hopscotching yeah, around. Yeah, there's some, one thing I would like to, <clears throat> to offer. So um, I think it's so important for good people to get involved in their local communities. Um, so, you know, for me, that was running for city council. Uh, there are a lot of other ways you could do it. But in particular, people who have some kind of training, whether you're a planner or you're an engineer or you have some other kind of training that helps you think in a, in a good process, systematic way, you can make a huge contribution getting involved in your local community. And, I, you know, I really encourage people to do that. I loved my time on council. I served for 16 years. In Duluth, correct? In Duluth, yeah. city of Duluth, Georgia. And... Um, you know, I'd like to think I made some good contributions. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed the interactions that I had with the community, mm -hmm. but I also loved being at the table to help imagine what our community could be, just like you know the group yeah. that did out here at, at the, um, the center out here. 
Um, and, you know, we have a remarkable downtown now, and that was just one of many projects that we as a council tackled. And it's just very, very rewarding to be able to take what I do and know as a profession and bring it to serve my local community. You know, I am newer. I'm a transplant to the Gwinnett area from Peachtree City, Georgia. And I came here in 2018 and my apartment was right there in Duluth. And I got to see the change in just a short four or five years, how much it's transformed. As you Mm -hmm. said, the library, Main Street, all the restaurants and everything like that. It really is a beautiful little community. Thank you. So congratulations. Your efforts were are are working. And if anybody out there is listening and curious, do stop in and and visit one of our local attractions because Duluth has a lot to offer. You mentioned diversity earlier, and I was just trying to picture a two-lane Pleasant Hill Road and and the uh, description of Gwinnett that you gave and how much it has just changed in in that time. I would have loved to have seen it before all the the million people came in and uh, crowded the streets, I'll say. Marsha, before we say adios to our audience, I would like to give you the final uh, thought or leave our listeners with some words of wisdom. Oh, I appreciate that. So I think that the message that I really want to leave with everybody is that we all have something about us that's different, different from the, the group around us. So in my case, often I was the only woman um, in some cases, you know, one of my colleagues may have been the only black or brown person at the table. Somebody else may be different bodied, um, you know, whatever, whatever makes you uniquely you. Use that as a strength. You know, I'm not, I'm not one to ever take on the victim cape. Um, you know, me being a woman in a field that, of course, you know, was almost exclusively men and is still predominantly male. You know, it could have been a barrier to me succeeding if I just kind of fell in inward on that. Um, but I, I, I used my visibility to my advantage. You know, I tried, I knew that wherever I went, I would be noticed. So I had to think carefully about how to use that in a positive way instead of it being viewed as a negative. And, and so I think... Each one of us has something about us that distinguishes us. Mm-hmm. And we need to embrace whatever that is and use that to tell a better or a different story that helps educate other people and helps other people be better. So that's what I'd like to leave you very with. Very true. And thank you very much for sharing not only your story, but your passion and all of your experience. And we could have a couple more episodes to deep dive into some more of these bullet points together. Anytime. But for now, I do want to just thank you from the bottom of my heart for joining us on Celebrating Powerhouse Women. Today, Marsha Anderson Bomar was with us. And you guys know that you can listen to these podcasts anywhere that you find your favorite shows. I listen on iTunes. Where do you listen to podcasts? So I'm on Spotify because Stitcher is going away. Oh, Spotify. Do you have an Android or do you have an Apple phone? I am an Android person. I knew it. That's the, that's the <laughs> thing, you know? Um, also, you can listen live at 1130s on, 11.30 a.m. on uh, businessradiox.com. And I am your host, Amanda Pierce Marmaleo. Thank you so much for joining us on Celebrating Powerhouse Women.